Hello there, I'm Brock, and thanks for giving my new podcast, Haida Kolob and Beyond, a fighting chance. I intend to make it worth your while. In this podcast, I plan to talk about things, sometimes stories, history, or even game theory, first within the scope of the gospel, the part where we hide a kolob, and then examine the same concepts in the wild, or outside the gospel, the part where we go beyond. Picking up what I'm putting down? Well, buckle up, because I'm excited for this. Anyway, I thought that, being the first episode and all, I had no other choice but to talk about the creation, and call this episode, In the Beginning. Today, we're going to talk about the many distinct and conflicting creation stories, all present in the standard works, you know, the Bible, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, Temple, and beyond. So, to talk about the doctrine that'll get us to Kolob, I figured that the best way to talk about that is to talk about the temple creation story. And, I mean, I know. I know the temple's sacred. Um, I even capitalize it when I type. It's got to mean something, right? Anyway, the temple is sacred, and there are secret or sacred parts to the ordinance. But, according to David Bednar in Prepared to Obtain Every Needful Thing, April 2019 General Conference, He seems to think that only the parts we covenanted to keep sacred or secret upon pain of death are the parts that we need to keep hidden. As such, and following his sage advice, I'm going to talk about the creation story detailed within the temple. After a brief introduction and explanation about the endowment, we learn the following about the creation. In the beginning, yep, that's where I got my episode name, still proud of it. Anyway, in the beginning... There was disorganized matter. Elohim, the Hebrew word for gods, yes, plural. Also, however, the name of our Heavenly Father, commanded Jehovah and Michael to organize the matter. Interesting that we call it the creation when it seems like matter was organized rather than created. Anyway, that was day one. Elohim, God, Heavenly Father, the guy upstairs, whatever name you want, He commanded Jehovah and Michael, the dream team, to join the waters and reveal the earth. That was day two. The man upstairs, I'm trying to follow Doctrine and Covenants 107, verse 3, commanded the dream team to, one, separate light from darkness, two, add stars, three, place the sun and the moon, and four, call it a day for day three. Now, on the fourth day, The man upstairs commanded the dream team to, one, plant all the plants, and two, call it a day. That was day four. Now for day five, the man upstairs commanded the dream team to place all the animals in the earth, and then call it a day for day five. Then, for day six, the man upstairs decided the world was ready for mankind. According to the temple, the creation of mankind goes as follows. 1. Adam's body was formed in the image of God. 2. The breath of life was breathed into him. I believe that refers to a spirit. 
3. After being created, receiving a spirit, and waking, the man upstairs and Jehovah decide that it is not good for man to be alone, and give him Eve, whom Adam calls woman. There you go. If you haven't been in the temple and are wondering what the first 30 minutes of the endowment are about, we've reviewed it. Now, let's look at some of the principles we can glean from the creation story, or rather, organization story, I guess, presented in the temple. As insinuated before, the word creation seems a bit misleading, considering the world was organized, right? Light was separated from darkness, the plants were planted, the water was separated from the earth, the animals were placed. The only thing seemingly formed was Adam. Maybe then, as I've said, should it be called the organization story? Anyway, now for two. The man upstairs seems to be the HBIC, and he seems content to let others do the work. This could be seen as a positive trait, or a negative trait. I'm just pointing out the observation. You are in charge of signing value to that observation. Three, death is not mentioned in the creation or organization process. Maybe they just hadn't separated life from death yet. Four, man was created in the image of God, as I have said before. As much as we like to affirm that woman was as well, the story doesn't seem to line up that way. Five, speaking of the woman, the creation story seems to propose that woman was created for man. I'm just the messenger. Please don't shoot me for sharing this. But this belief does have serious implications for polygamy, and Joseph Smith's happiness letter seems to corroborate a similar sentiment. Woman was made to please man. Once again, I'm not defending the idea. I'm just pointing out rational conclusions given the doctrine presented in the temple. There are more ways to look at this story and more points to bring up, but there are also conclusions that we come to that are actually in conflict with the creation or organization story. For example, the often promoted idea that man and woman were both created in the image of God doesn't fit the fact that God didn't make the two simultaneously. Rather, he made Eve after he realized Adam was lonely. As we will see beyond Kolob, the creation of both genders being created in the image of God depends on their simultaneous creation. Interestingly, Joseph Smith wrote another two versions of the creation, each with their own conflicts, both between each other and with the temple story. They're each their own fascinating story, but we'll come back to them as we wrap up the episode. For now, we're wrapping up our trip to Kolob, but open your mind and spirit, buckle down, and keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times, because we're about to go beyond plus ultra style. Welcome to your first thrilling trip beyond Kolob. I know it may be intimidating at first, but I'm confident you will derive new insight and meaning in your life as you stretch your boundaries a bit. Now, let's look at some of the different creation accounts present in our standard works and ask ourselves what they all might mean. The book of Genesis itself contains two distinct versions of the creation. One goes from Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, 
and another goes from Genesis 2-4 to the end of the chapter. They really need to change those chapter separations, don't they? Anyway, in the first version, from Genesis 1-1 to 2-3, we see the quintessential creation story. On the first day, verses 1 to 5, God separated the heavens from the earth and light from darkness. Let's point out that the light doesn't seem to have been created. Rather, it was once again separated. On the second day, verses 6 to 8, we see God separate the clouds from the sea. Once again, separation, not creation. On the third day, verses 9 to 13, the sea and earth were separated. Sensing a theme here? I'm seeing a lot of separation. Not very much creation. Should we get a refund for false advertising on this story? Anyway, after that, God commanded plants to grow forth, or something like that. On day 4, verses 14 to 19, we finally see the sun, moon, and stars. On day 5, verses 20 to 23, we see the marine animals and birds come into existence. Interestingly, in verse 21, we see God's first creation, great whales. On day 6, verses 24 to 31, we see animals come forth. And then in verse 26, we see God say, Let us make a man in our image after our likeness, and give them special powers of dominion over pretty much everything else in the world. And after that, God makes man and woman in his own image. Remember the temple account? where I said that simultaneous creation was required in order for both man and woman to be made in God's image? This is where we see it. Anyway, the fact that both genders were created in God's image leads us to wonder what unique identifiers distinguish us from animals and model us after God's likeness. Could it be one, because we, man and woman, have both a spirit and a body? Would that mean animals are like God too, though? Two, could it be because we are conscious with the ability to think? Three, could it be because God represents both masculine and feminine? Four, could it be that God is the union of man and woman, aka marriage, rather than a specific man or woman? Five, could it be because together life can be created? Would that mean basically all living creatures were created in the image of God, though? Would that mean the bacteria are especially godlike, considering they can reproduce independently? That would be weird. Anyway, six, could it be that the power of speech is what makes God divine? Let's take note that in this story, no specific Adam nor Eve was mentioned. No woman was created for any man and no concept of help meet was implied. It seems this first version is much more egalitarian than the version we imitate in the temple. The seventh day, Genesis 2, 1-3, was a day of rest. I imagine that even God can work so hard he gets tired. Let's note that in other creation accounts, like in the rest of Genesis 2, the seventh day was never mentioned. It's almost like this version of the story was created specifically to justify the commandment of the Sabbath. Before moving on to analyze this story, I would like to point out that the Garden of Eden was never mentioned in this creation account. As they say, 
with something as important as the Garden of Eden, absence of evidence is evidence of absence. It seems like the Garden of Eden didn't exist in this first creation story. I know it feels like I'm beating a dead horse here, but I would like to point out once again that the idea of creation seems like we're overselling God a bit here. I think that we could rightly call this story the Great Segregation, or the Great Distinction, or the Great Separation, or just the Separation, rather than calling it the Creation. In addition, as we've pointed out before, Adam and Eve weren't present in this version of the Great Distinction, and neither was the Garden of Eden. What implications would this version of the creation have on the plan of salvation? Looking more deeply into this version of the creation, however, the story seems to artistically express the divine power of speech. The story seems to go to great lengths to specify that rather than create, God separated concepts and matter with the power of his word. What can we learn from this? that the power of speech, or the word, in and of itself, may not create the world around us, but it does give us all the power to distinguish and recognize it. Scientists have done studies to examine the effect that language has on our perception, and have come to surprising conclusions. Here are three examples. In some languages, like the Himba or Simba language, there's no word for the color blue. In a study, researchers placed a blue square among other identical but green squares, and subjects were asked to identify the unique shape. Interestingly, Himba participants took longer to identify the blue square as unique. In this way, the word blue creates the perception of the distinction between the colors blue and green. Going the other direction from English, Russia has two words for blue. One is light blue, and one is dark blue. Similar to our words for red and pink. This distinction gives Russians an advantage over English speakers to identify the difference between two shades of blue. To show yet another example of the concept of language creating illusory distinctions and similarities, native English speakers find significantly greater similarity between the bat we use to hit a baseball and the bat that flies around at night just because they have the same name. There are many other examples that illustrate the way that language determines the way we perceive the world around us. But each of these studies seem to lead us to a similar conclusion. Our vocabulary informs the way we perceive and act in the world. If the word blue is what helps us distinguish it from green, maybe light is what helps us discern it from darkness. Maybe the word good helps us recognize and avoid the concept of evil. Now imagine what concepts we haven't ever recognized, only because we haven't named it yet. With the power of speech, God created, or rather defined, the world. We define, separate, and create the world around us with the same power. I'm not speaking just of the gospel, nor of the divine word. Rather, I refer to all speech, to all words. There is no divine word. All words carry divine power. We all use the same divine power to describe and give narrative and meaning to the world around us. This story posits that as we define and navigate the dualities of life, 
like light and darkness, masculine and feminine, and good and evil, we exercise divine power with just our speech. I believe, like this first story proposes, that what you say, that what I say, is of greatest import, and it carries divine power. Imagine the divine power that you wield with your own words, your own history, and your own unique worldview. Now we're going to move on to the second story, found in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. This is where the creation story starts to get more exciting. Now, not only do we have conflicts between the first Genesis story and the temple, but we also begin to see conflicts between adjacent chapters in Genesis. Let's look in Genesis 2-4 and really consider what it says. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. After which, in verse 5, the author elaborates that the following verses occurred before plants, herbs, or anything else. Due to verse 4 alone, we can clearly delineate between the first and second versions of the creation. Interestingly, we see that the order of God's creations differ, as do the motivations behind them. Let's look into the order of creation events as presented in Genesis 2. 1. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, verse 4, a mist watered the earth, verse 6. 2. God formed man of the dust, verse 7, and breathed life into him. Let's note that in this version, we don't even see any evidence that mankind was created in the image of God. 3. God made the Garden of Eden for him, Adam, likely as a gift, verses 8 to 9. However, God prohibits partaking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Golly gee, that's a long name. Anyway, I love this topic, which is why you'll have to wait until the episode titled The Price of Wisdom to talk more about this. 4. It seems like Adam felt lonely and, frankly, probably bored with God's creations, because in verse 18, God decides to make and help meet for him. You'd think that meant he'd jump right to Eve, but he seems to make every other animal in existence, and let Adam name them even before that. 5. Eventually, after running out of ideas with animals, God decides to make Eve, and either Adam is satisfied or God is out of ideas because he commands them to be one flesh and stop making new things for Adam. We'll go a bit more into detail, but that's the summarized version. So, what principles can we glean from this version of the story? Let's go through it step by step. From one, as I've said before, when sufficiently open-minded, we can see a second version of the creation. If the creation story was a factual recounting of the occurrence of events, as written and recorded by prophets, the mouthpieces of God, why has the same prophet published two dualistic versions of the creation? In the first version, man and woman were both created in the image of God. In the second, man was created and placed on the earth, and literally every other living thing was created to please Adam. By the way, who thought rattlesnakes would please Adam? Anyway, eventually Eve satisfied Adam, and thus the creation was resolved. Again, the important question is, if the creation happened, 
then why would the God of truth reveal two unresolvable versions of the same story to Moses, the prophet we believe wrote Genesis? I don't quite want to touch this point yet, but it is an important one, so let's shelf that for a bit. I promise we'll pull it off the shelf in a bit, though. 2. When God formed man of the dust and breathed life into him. That's verse 7. Here we've got two questions we can ask. 1. We've already established that this account doesn't specify man's creation in the image of God, and given its central importance to our lives, once again I would posit that absence of evidence is evidence of absence. Why then was man not created in the image of God here? We do see in Genesis 3 that man will become like God after partaking of the forbidden fruit, which the serpent says will make them like God. Could it be that God created man, but gave man the choice of whether or not to assume God's image? That's pretty moving. The next question is, admittedly, a bit more loaded, and I don't claim a personal opinion here. Rather, I propose methods and questions to understand the stories presented here. In both the temple and this version of the creation, it looks a lot like God breathed Adam's spirit into him. Does that mean that a baby's spirit only enters a body on the first breath? In 3 Nephi 1, Nephi prays for comfort and protection. And in verses 12 and 13 of 3 Nephi 1, we see that the voice of the Lord, Jesus, came to him, Nephi, saying, Tomorrow I come into the world. That's in 1 Nephi 1, verses 12 to 13. The next day, Jesus was born. This can easily lead us to conclude that one spirit enters its body upon the first breath made in this world. And that leads us to a challenging question. With no spirit in the body, is abortion still murder? Why or why not? Now for part three, returning to the idea of the Garden of Eden, we have another two questions. One, we see God give explicit permission to partake of the fruit of any tree, except for the forbidden one, of course. Granted, at this time in the creation story, no animals existed yet, but permission was never granted, either explicitly or implicitly, to consume the other animals. Does this imply vegetarian expectations of us? It would seem to coincide with the word of wisdom in Doctrine and Covenants 89.12, where flesh of the beasts and fowls of the air are to be used sparingly. In addition to vegetarianism possibly being commanded, we can ask ourselves, one, if God didn't want to partake of the forbidden fruit, why did he even make it available? And two, why did Adam have to die upon partaking of the forbidden fruit? These profound and very interesting questions will be left for the next episode. Ha, I've got you hooked now, haven't I? Now for four, given the process of creating Eve, it's pretty easy to come to the conclusion that she, and by inheritance, I guess all women, were created either for Adam or for men. Once again, I'm just trying to communicate the story and the principles we can learn, not trying to preach that idea. There are, however, different ways of interpreting the same succession of events. First off, we could conclude that Eve was within Adam the whole time. What if, before being divided, Adam was intersexual, both male and female? That'd be pretty cool. It even fits with legends from other cultures throughout the world. It is said that 
Man and woman were one being, but the gods saw how powerful they were, so they were separated. As a result, our life's mission is to find our other half and unite ourselves with them. The details may be incorrect, but what if Adam and Eve were separated in order to find and become one with each other again? That's even in the story, right? Maybe the conflict and effort required to unify a partnership represents the duality between the spirit and body. What if unison between two beings is the physical manifestation of our independent spiritual struggle? With that line of thinking, we may be able to recognize intersexually born children as more divine than children limited to one sex or gender. They could be both Adam and Eve from before the split, embodying both male and female, masculine and feminine. This could even give room for the blurring of gender attraction and identity, given that the original man was both male and female, the masculine adoption of femininity could be interpreted as a form of ascension. On the other hand, the spiritual split could be distinct from masculine and femininity at all, which could give room for homosexual couples as well. Given the above examples and interpretations of the creation of man and woman, I see a much larger place for the rainbow community within our ranks than even I had previously thought. Intersexual, gender dysphoric, and homosexual beings have even been worshipped throughout history as gods, or as their mortal avatars like prophets. Could that be one of the lost truths that will be brought to light by the ongoing restoration in which we live? Now let's move on to the creation story found in John 1. In this story, the Word was with God, verse 1, and all things were created through the Word. Verse 3. Once again, we see the thematic importance of the word, the power of speech. Within Kolob, there is equivalence between the word and Jesus Christ. But beyond, it is also understood as logos, or divine logic and speech. Here we see that both our capacity for speech and our capacity for self-reflection and logic are the source of divine authority. John 1 is an expansion of the version of creation in Genesis 1, allowing for thought and logic as well as speech. As Jesus has said, the kingdom of God is within you, and the kingdom of God is among you. Both are valid translations of Luke 17.21. Which is correct? I think both. We each possess a portion of the kingdom of God but it can only be made manifest by the free speech and cooperation of each of us. We'll loop back to this. But before, let's talk about the many other creation narratives mentioned throughout the standard works. I think we've covered the most prominent ones, so I'll just mention the remaining ones. The first few include some honorable mentions. One, we've got Proverbs 8, which posits that wisdom a divine entity, likely a goddess, was God's first creation. And the goddess wisdom helped him create everything else. That's verses 22 to 31 of Proverbs 8. Psalms 33, verses 6 and 7 believes, once again, that the divine word carries creative power. And it was word alone that created the universe. 3. We've got Psalms 104, verses 5 to 23, that points out that creation continues and emphasizes the duality or opposition of the world's creations, like land and water, light and dark. 
4, in Job 31, we see God compare the creation to war with the Leviathan. Imagine the Hydra. This version of the creation was actually an adaptation of the Babylonian creation myth, in which God defeats the serpent goddess Tiamat and uses her carcass to create the world. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? We also see plenty of other versions. We've got three in Job, three additional in Job. In Job 26, 28, and 38, we've got four additional versions in Psalms 8, 19, 89, and 102. We've got three versions of the creation in Isaiah 28, 40, and 45. And in Jeremiah 10, we have an eighth book that talks about the creation. Now we're going to come full circle and talk about Joseph Smith again, this time a little bit outside of Kolob, a little bit beyond that. In addition to the Temple Endowment, Joseph Smith introduced yet another two creation myths. Look, they can't all be factual with such deep conflicts, that's why I call them myths. In Moses 2 and Abraham 4, in addition to simplistic and obvious conflicts like the specific days and order in which plants, animals, earth, and light were created, we see some seriously theology-defining conflicts. For example, in Moses 2, God alone created everything, using the power of his word alone. Nobody helped him, and no action was taken apart from the divine power of speech. Once again, we see the recurring theme of the divine logos, the root word for both dialogue and logic. In Abraham 4, however, things get quite a bit more exciting. The gods form the earth. Who were these gods? It's easy to just sit comfortably and say that they were God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost. But, at the same time the book of Abraham came out, Joseph Smith told Eliza R. Snow, one of his polygamous wives, that we have a heavenly mother as well. In fact, in ancient times, the Jews worshipped Asherah as heavenly mother, and her symbol was the tree of life. What if she helped in the creation? We've also heard of divine wisdom, as mentioned in Proverbs 8. She claims to have assisted God in the creation of the world as well. What if she was one of the gods that helped create the world? The third option seems to make the most sense to me, though, for example, on earth, when a ward member needs help with their yard or house, the elders' quorum or relief society, or both, I guess, will band together and join in on a massive group service project. Now I'm imagining all of Heavenly Father's sibling gods and goddesses uniting, bringing some brownies, ice cream, maybe some lemonade, and all sinking elbow deep into the creation of our world. Do you think they saying, put your shoulder to the wheel? Or if you could hide from Kolob? <laughs> Get it? They were already at Kolob. With so many deep conflicts between all of the different creation stories, even looking at just the differences between Joseph Smith's three versions, it becomes very challenging to th view them through a literalistic lens. The more we look at them, the more they seem to depart from historicity and venture towards mythology. That's not saying the stories aren't true. Rather, it changes the truths we learn from them. The Hero with a Thousand Faces elaborates this idea more deeply. That leads me to an interesting and potentially embarrassing question. What if God used evolution to introduce the vast diversity of life we have in the world? 
Given that God's all-powerful, I wouldn't put it past him. And if evolution was, in fact, God's creative tool, how embarrassing would it be to find out we've been bashing evolution for over a hundred years? <laughs> Just to find out both scientists and religion were right. Us religious folk were just too blind to see it. But I'm not here to talk about evolution. I'm here to revel in the diversity God has given us. Given that God created all of the different biomes, animals, and plants we see in the world, I would wager that he seems to like diversity. We even have diversity or multivocality in the way the creation is presented to us. God gave many people of many backgrounds and many conflicting opinions, voice both in the Bible and in all the standard works. Who do we think we are to silence the diversity in word and opinion that God has so graciously given us? If indeed, as proposed by many of the creation myths, speech is divine and our stories are sacred, as we can see by the many versions of just the creation in scripture, we all have the divine right, as well as divine duty, to share our beliefs without fear of punishment. We also bear the divine right, as well as divine duty, to listen to and empathize with others' stories, even when they may conflict with ours. Isn't that what Jesus would do? The Jews, Moses, Abraham, and John all comprehended the divine power of speech and spoke and wrote what they believed. When we myopically search for and cling to a perceived historically accurate version of the creation or separation, we lose sight of the beautiful panorama given to us by authors and prophets throughout history. We lose sight of the forest for the trees. What is the forest we lose sight of among the trees? It's the kingdom of God. I believe, as proposed in Genesis 1 and restated in John 1, that we are all divine because we all possess divine logos. God, with but a word, separated light from darkness. Imagine the power we wield when we speak the truths we hold dear. Speech is the power of God and we wield the same power to navigate and define the world we live in. God recognizes it and has included many voices in the scriptures. God recognizes it and has consecrated, made holy, pluralism. God recognizes it and demands we use it. As you speak your thoughts, I speak mine, and we all strive to listen and understand together. Each of us has the divine right to speak, and the divine duty to speak from the heart. God loves and listens. We should too. That's what the church is for. To share our unique stories and perspectives, to be heard, and to hear those of others as well, even when they offend us, even when we think they're wrong. Find your voice, not the voice of others, even if it's the voice of prophets. Lift your light from the bushel. Dare to be authentic, even in the church. Only then can we create the world we yearn for. Only then can we raise from the trees to see the forest. As we've established earlier, the kingdom of God is within each of us, 
and among all of us. We must share our peace, even when afraid. We must listen to others, even when afraid. That is the only way we can hide a kolob and beyond. Thanks again for listening to this first episode of my podcast. I hope you've gotten as much out of it as I have, and I hope you're as excited about the next episode as I am. If so, please follow me and rate my podcast positively so we can all hide a collab and be on together. Much of this content is better worked through together, so please reach out to me with critiques, and please share this with friends and family so that we can all be uplifted.